0: Great Separation by J.C. Ryle. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up to chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3 verse 12. Wheat or chaff? You see my question? For whom do you think it is meant Is it for corn merchants and farmers only and for none else? If you think so, then you are much mistaken. It is meant for every man, woman, and child in the world, and among others, it is meant for you. The question is drawn from the verse of Scripture which is now before your eyes. The words of that verse were spoken by John the Baptist. They are a prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ, and a prophecy which has not yet been fulfilled. They are a prophecy which we shall all see fulfilled one day and God alone knows how soon. Listener, I invite you this day to consider the great truths which this verse contains. I invite you to listen to me while I unfold them and set them before you in order. Who knows, but this text may prove a word in season to your soul. Who knows, but my question may help to make this day the happiest day in your life. Listen. Before you begin once more your appointed path of duty, listen. Before you start once more on some round of business, listen. Before you plunge once more into some course of useless idleness and folly, listen to one who loves your soul and would sincerely help to save it or draw near to Christ. Who knows what a day may bring forth? Who can tell whether you will live to see tomorrow? Be still and listen to me a few minutes. Well, I show you something out of the word of God. Let me show you in the first place the two great classes into which the world may be divided. There are only two classes of people in the world in the sight of God, and both are mentioned in the text, which begins this tract. There are those who are called the wheat, and there are those who are called the chaff. Viewed, with the eye of man the earth contains many different sorts of inhabitants viewed with the eye of god it only contains two man's eye looks at the outward appearance this is all he thinks of the eye of god looks at the heart this is the only part of which he takes any account and tried by the state of their hearts there are but two classes in which people can be divided either they are wheat or they are chaff listener who are the wheat in the world. Listen to me and I will tell you, the wheat means all men and women who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, all who are led by the Holy Spirit, all who have felt themselves sinners and fled for refuge to the salvation offered in the gospel, all who love the Lord Jesus and live to the Lord Jesus and serve the Lord Jesus, all who have taken Christ for their only confidence and the Bible for their only guide and regard sin as their deadliest enemy, and look to heaven as their only home. All such, of every church, name, nation, people, and tongue, of every rank, station, condition, and degree, all such are God's wheat. Show me men of this kind of people anywhere, and I know what they are. I know that they, and I may not agree in all particulars, But I see in them the handiwork of the king of kings, and I ask no more. I know not whence they came, and where they found their religion, but I know where they are going, and that is enough for me. They are the children of my Father in heaven. They are part of his wheat. All such, though sinful and vile and unworthy in their own eyes, are the precious part of mankind. They are the sons and daughters of God the Father. They are the delight of God the Son. They are the habitation of God the Spirit. The Father beholds no iniquity in them. They are members of his dear Son's body. In him he sees them and is well pleased. The Lord Jesus discerns in them the fruit of his own travail, and work upon the cross. And is well satisfied. The Holy Spirit regards them as spiritual temples, which he himself has raised, and rejoices over them. In a word, they are the wheat of the earth, God's wheat. Listener, who are the chaff in the world? Listen to me once more, and I will tell you this also. The chaff means all men and women who have no saving faith in Christ and no sanctification of the Spirit whoever they may be. Some of them perhaps are infidels, and some are formal Christians. Some are sneering Sadducees, and some self-righteous Pharisees. Some of them make a point of keeping up a kind of Sunday religion, and others are utterly careless of everything except their own pleasure in the world. But all alike, who have the two great marks already mentioned, no faith and no sanctification, All such are chaff. From the atheists, Thomas Paine and Voltaire, to the formal churchmen who can think of nothing but outward ceremonies, to the unconverted admirer of sermons in the present day, all, all are standing in one rank before God. All are chaff. They bring no glory to God the Father, They do not honor the Son. They do not honor the Father who sent him. They neglect that mighty salvation which countless millions of angels admire. They disobeyed that word which was graciously written for their learning. They do not listen to the voice of him who condescended to leave heaven and die for sinners. They pay no tribute of service and affection to him who gave them life and breath and all things and therefore God takes no pleasure in them. He pities them, but he does not reckon them any better than chaff. Yes, you have rare intellectual gifts and high mental attainments. You may sway kingdoms by your counsel, move millions by your pen, or keep crowds in breathless attention by your tongue. But if you have never submitted yourself to the yoke of Christ, and never honored his gospel by heartfelt reception of it. Then you were nothing but chaff in his sight. Natural gifts, without saving grace, are like a row of tall trees without a unit before them. They look big, but they are of no value. The vilest insect that crawls in the filth is a nobler being than you are. It fills its place in creation, and glorifies its maker with all of its power. But you do not. You do not honor God with your heart and will and intellect, and members, which are all His. You invert His order and arrangement, and live as if time was of more importance than eternity. And your body, than your soul, you dare to neglect God's greatest gift, His own incarnate Son, You are cold about that subject which fills all heaven with alleluias. And so long as this is the case, you belong to the worthless part of mankind. You are the chaff of the earth. Listener, let the thought be deeply engraved in your mind. Whatever else you forget in this volume, remember there are only two kinds of people in the world. They are wheat and they are chaff. There are many nations in Europe. Each differs from the rest. Each has its own language, its own laws, its own peculiar customs. But God's eye divides Europe into two great parties. The wheat and the chaff. There are many classes in England. There are nobles and commoners, farmers and shopkeepers, masters and servants, rich and poor. But God's eye only takes account of two orders the wheat, and the chaff. There are many and various minds in every congregation that meets for religious worship. There are some who attend for a mere form, and some who really desire to meet Christ. Some who come there to please others, and some who come to please God. Some who bring their hearts with them, and are not soon tired and some who leave their hearts behind him and reckon the whole service as worry-work. But the eye of Jesus only sees two divisions in the congregation, the wheat and the chaff. There were millions of visitors to the great exhibition of 1851. From Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, from north and south and east and west, crowds came together to see what human skill and industry could do. Children of her first father, Adam's family, who had never seen each other before, for once met to face under one roof. But the eye of the Lord only saw two companies thronging that large palace of glass. Listener, I know well the world dislikes this way of dividing professing Christians. The world tries hard to fancy there are three sorts of people, and not two. To be very godly and very strict does not suit the world. They cannot, they will not be holy. To have no religion at all does not suit the world, as that would not be respectable. Thank God, they will say, we are not so bad as that. But to have religion enough to be respectable, and yet not go into extremes, to be sufficiently good and yet not be peculiar, To have a quiet, easy-going, moderate kind of Christianity and go comfortably to heaven after all. This is the world's favorite idea. This is a third class, a safe middle class. The world imagines, and in this middle class, a majority of men persuade themselves they will be found. Listener, I denounce this notion of a middle class as an immense and soul-ruining delusion. I warn you strongly not to be carried away by it. It is as vain an invention as the Pope's purgatory. It is a refuge of lies, a castle in the air, a Russian ice palace, a vast unreality and empty dream. This middle class is a class of Christians nowhere spoken of in the Bible. There were two classes in the day of Noah's flood, those who were inside the ark Those who were outside. There were two classes in the parable of the gospel net, those who are called the good fish and those who are called the bad. There were two classes in the parable of the ten virgins, those who are described as wise and those who are described as foolish. There were two classes in the account of the judgment day, the sheep and the goats. There were two sides of the throne, the right hand and the left. There were two abodes when the last sentence was passed, heaven and hell, and just so there are only two classes in the world, those who are in a state of nature and those who are in a state of grace, those who are in a narrow way and those who are in the broad, those who have faith and those who have no faith, those who have been converted and those who have not been converted. Those who are with Christ and those who are against him, those who gather with him and those who scatter abroad, those who are wheat and those who are chaff. Into these two classes the whole world may be divided. Besides these two classes there is none. Listener, dear listener, see now what cause there is for self-inquiry. Are you among the wheat? or among the chaff. Neutrality is impossible. Either you are in one class or any other. Which is it of the two? You attend church, perhaps. You go to the Lord's table. You look like good people. You can distinguish between good preaching and bad. You think that potpourri is false, and you oppose it firmly. You think Protestantism is true and support it cordially. You subscribe to religious societies. You attend religious meetings. You sometimes read religious books. It is well. It is all very well. It is good. It is all very good. It is more than can be said of many. But still, this is not a straightforward answer to my question. Are you wheat? Or are you chaff? Have you been born again? Are you a new creature? Let me show you in the second place a time when the two great classes of mankind shall be separated. The text at the beginning of this tract foretells the separation. It says that Christ shall one day do to his professing church what the farmer does to his corn. He shall winnow it and sift it. He will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor and then the wheat and the chaff shall be divided. There is no separation yet. Good and bad are now all mingled together in the visible church of Christ. Believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted, holy and unholy, are all to be found now among those who call themselves Christians. They sit side by side in our assemblies. They kneel side by side in our pews. They listen side by side to our sermons. They sometimes come up side by side to the Lord's table and receive the same bread and wine from our hands. But it shall not always be so. Christ shall come the second time with his winnowing fork in his hand. He shall thoroughly purge his church even as he purified the temple. And then the wheat and the chaff shall be separated and each go to its own place. Before Christ comes, Separation is impossible. It is not in man's power to effect it. There lives not a minister on earth who can read the hearts of everyone in his congregation. About some he may speak decidedly, but he cannot about all. Who have oil in their lamps, and who have not? Who have grace as well as profession, and who have profession only and no grace? Who are the children of God? and who of the devil? All these are questions which, in many cases, we cannot accurately decide. The winnowing fork is not put into our hands. Grace is sometimes so weak and feeble that it looks like nature. Nature is sometimes so plausible and well-dressed that it looks like grace. I believe many of us would have said that Judas was as good as any of the apostles and yet he proved a traitor. I believe we would have said that Peter was a reprobate when he denied his Lord, and yet he repented immediately and rose again. We are but fallible men. We know in part. We scarcely understand our own hearts. It is no great wonder if we cannot read the hearts of others. But it will not always be so. There is one coming who never errs in judgment, and is perfect in knowledge. Jesus shall purge his floor. Jesus shall sift the wheat from the chaff. I wait for this. Until then I will lean to the side of charity in my judgments. I would rather tolerate much chaff in the church than cast out one grain of wheat. He shall soon come who has his winnowing fork in his hand and in the certainty about every one shall be known. Before Christ comes, I do not expect to see a perfect church. There cannot be such a thing. The wheat and the chaff and the present state of things will always be found together. I pity those who leave one church and join another, because of a few faults, and unsound members. I pity them, because they are fostering ideals which never can be realized. I pity them because they are seeking that which cannot be found. I see chaff everywhere. I see imperfections and infirmities of some kind in every church on earth. I believe there are few tables of the Lord, if any, where all the communicants are converted. I often see loud, talking professors exalted as saints. I often see holy and contrite believers set down as having no grace at all. I think that if men are too scrupulous, they may go fluttering about like Noah's dove all their days and never find rest. Listener, do you desire a perfect church? You must wait for the day of Christ's appearing. Then, and not until then, you will see a glorious church having neither spot nor wrinkle or any such thing. Then, and not till then, the floor will be purged. Before Christ comes, I do not look for the conversion of the world. How can it be if he is to find both wheat and chaff side by side in the day of his second coming? I believe some Christians expect that missions will fill the earth with the knowledge of Christ and a state of perfect holiness gradually glide in. I cannot see with their eyes. I think they are mistaking God's purposes and sowing bitter disappointment for themselves. I expect nothing of the kind. I see nothing in the Bible or in the world around me to make me expect it. I have never heard of a single parish entirely converted to God in England or Scotland or of anything like it. And why am I to look for a different result from the preaching of the gospel in other lands? I only expect to see a few raised up as witnesses to Christ in every nation, some in one place, some in another. Then I expect the Lord Jesus will come in glory with his winnowing fork in his hand. And when he has purged his floor, and not until then, the kingdom will begin. No separation and no perfection until Christ comes. This is my creed. I am not moved when the infidel asks me why all the world is not converted. If Christianity is really true, I answer it was never promised that it would be so in the present order of things. The Bible tells me that believers will always be few, that corruptions and divisions and heresies will always abound, and that when the Lord returns to earth, he will find plenty of chaff, no perfection until Christ comes. Let me show you in the last place a portion which remains for all who are not Christ's people. The text, at the beginning of this tract describes us in words which should make our ears Christ shall burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes to purge his threshing floor, he shall punish all who are not his disciples with a fearful punishment, all who are found impenitent and unbelieving, all who have held the truth and unrighteousness, all who have clung to sin, stuck to the world, and set their affections on things below. All who are without, Christ, all shall come to an awful end. Christ shall burn up the chaff. Their punishment shall be most severe. There is no pain like that of burning. Put your finger in the candle flame for a moment, if you doubt this, and try. Fire is the most destructive and devouring of all elements. Look into the mouth of a blast furnace and think what it would be to be there fires of all elements most opposed to life creatures can live in air and earth and water but nothing can live in fire yet fires a portion to which the Christless and unbelieving will come Christ will burn up to chaff with unquenchable fire their punishment shall be eternal Millions of ages shall pass away, and the fire into which the chaff is cast shall still burn on. That fire shall never burn low and become dim. The feel of that fire shall never waste away and be consumed. It is unquenchable fire. Oh, listener, these are sad and painful things to speak of. I have no pleasure in dwelling on them. I could rather say with the Apostle Paul I have great sorrow. But they are things written for our learning, and it is good to consider them. They are part of that scripture which is all profitable, and they ought to be heard. As painful as the subject of hell is, it is a subject about which I dare not. I cannot, I must not be silent, who would desire to speak of hell fire. If God had not spoken of it, when God has spoken of it so plainly, who can safely hold his peace? I dare not shut my eyes to the fact that a deep-rooted infidelity lurks in men's minds on the subject of hell. I see it oozing out in the utter apathy of some, to eat and drink and sleep, as if there were no wrath to come. I see it creeping forth in the coldness of others about their neighbor's souls. They show little concern to pluck brands from the fire. I desire to denounce such infidelity with all of my might, believing that there are terrors of the Lord as well as a recompense of reward. I call upon all who profess to believe the Bible to be on their guard. I know that some do not believe there is any hell at all. They think it impossible there can be such a place. They call it inconsistent with the mercy of God. They say it is too dreadful an idea to be really true. The devil, of course, rejoices in the views of such people. They help his kingdom mightily. They are preaching up his favorite old doctrine, You shall not surely die. I know, furthermore, that some do not believe that hell is eternal. They tell us it is incredible that a compassionate God will punish men forever. He will surely open the prison doors at last. This also is a mighty help to the devil's cause. Take your ease, he whispers to sinners. If you do make a mistake, never mind. It is not forever. I know also that some believe there is a hell, but never allow that anybody is going there. All people with them are good as soon as they die. All were sincere. They all meant well. And all they hoped go to heaven at last. Alas, what a common delusion is this. I can well understand the feeling of the little girl who asked her mother where all the wicked people were buried. For she found no mention of the gravestones of any except the good. And I know very well that some believe there is a hell and never like it to be spoken of. It is a subject that should always be kept back. They see no profit in bringing it forward and are rather shocked when it is mentioned. This also is an immense help to the devil. Hush, hush, says Satan, say nothing about hell. The fowler wishes to hear no noise when he lays his snare. The wolf would like the shepherd To sleep when he prowls around the fold. Just so the devil rejoices when Christians are silent about hell. Listener, all these notions are the opinions of man. What is it to you and I? What man thinks in religion? Man will not judge us at the last day. Man's fancies and traditions are not to be our guide in this life. There is but one point to be settled. What says the word of God? Do you believe the Bible? Then depend upon it. Hell is real and true. It is as true as heaven. As true as justification by faith. As true as the fact that Christ died upon the cross. There is not a fact or doctrine which you may not lawfully doubt. If you doubt hell, disbelieve hell, and you unscrew Unsettle and unpin everything in Scripture. You may as well throw your Bible away at once. From no hell to no God is but a series of steps. Do you believe the Bible, then depend upon it. Hell will have inhabitants. The wicked shall certainly be turned into hell, and all the people that forget God. These shall go away into everlasting punishment." The same blessed Savior who now sits on a throne of grace will one day sit on a throne of judgment, and men will see there is such a thing as the wrath of the Lamb. The same lips which now say, Come unto me, will one day say, Depart from me, you cursed. Alas, how awful the thought of being condemned by Christ himself, judged by the Savior, sentenced to eternal misery by the Lamb. Do you believe the Bible? Then, depend upon it, hell will be intense and an unutterable woe. It is vain to talk of all the expressions about being only figures of speech. The pit, the prison, the worm, the fire, the thirst, the blackness, the darkness, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the second death. All these may be figures of speech, if you please. But Bible figures mean something, beyond all question, and here they mean something which man's mind can never fully conceive. Oh, listener, the miseries of mind and conscience are far worse than those of the body. The whole extent of hell, the present suffering, the bitter recollection of the past, the hopeless prospect of the future will never be thoroughly known, except by those who go there. Do you believe the Bible? Then depend upon it. Hell is eternal. It must be eternal. or words have no meaning at all. Forever and ever. Everlasting. Unquenchable. Never dying. All these are expressions used about hell and expressions that cannot be explained away. It must be eternal, or the very foundations of heaven are cast down. If hell has an end, then heaven has an end also. They both stand or fall together. It must be, or else every doctrine of the gospel is undermined. If a man may escape hell at length without faith in Christ or sanctification of the Spirit, then sin is no longer an infinite evil. And there was no such great need for Christ to make it an atonement. And where is there warrant for saying that hell can ever change a heart? Or make it fit for heaven? Hell must be eternal or hell would cease to be hell altogether. Give a man hope and he will bear anything. Grant a hope of deliverance however distant and hell is but a drop of water. Ah, reader. These are solemn things. Forever is the most solemn word in the Bible. Alas for that day which shall have no tomorrow. That day when men shall seek death and not find it. And shall desire to die. But death shall flee from them. Who shall dwell with devouring fire? Who shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Do you believe the Bible? then depend upon it. Hell is a subject that ought not to be kept back. It is striking to observe that many texts about it in Scripture, it is striking to observe that none say so much about it as our Lord Jesus Christ, that gracious and merciful Savior, and the Apostle John whose heart seems full of love. Truly it may well be doubted whether ministers speak of it as much as we ought. I cannot forget the words of a dying hearer of Mr. Newton's. Sir, you often told me of Christ and salvation. Why did you not often remind me of hell and danger? Let others be silent about hell if they will. I dare not do so. I see it plainly in scripture, and I must speak of it. I fear that thousands are on that broad way that leads to it and I would sincerely arouse them to a sense of the peril before them. What would you say of the man who saw his neighbor's house in danger of being burnt down and never raised a cry of fire? What ought to be said of us ministers if we call ourselves watchmen for souls and yet see the fires of hell raging in the distance and never give the alarm? Call it bad taste, if you like, to speak of Hell. Call it charity to make things pleasant and speak smoothly and soothe men with constant lullaby of peace. From such notions of taste and charity, may I ever be delivered. My notion of charity is to warn men plainly of danger. My notion of taste in a ministerial office is to declare all the counsel of God. If I never spoke of hell, I would think I had kept back something that was profitable, and would look on myself as an accomplice of the devil. Listener, I beseech you, in all tender affection, beware of false views of the subject on which I have been dwelling. Beware of new and strange doctrines about hell and the eternity of punishment. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own, a God who is all mercy, but not just, a God who is all love but not holy, a God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for none, a God who can allow good and evil to be side by side in time but will make no distinction between good and evil in eternity, such a God is an idol of your own imagination, it is as true an idol as any snake or crocodile in an Egyptian temple as true an idol as was ever moulded out of brass or clay. The hands of your own imagination and sentimentality have made him. He is not the God of the Bible. And beside the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. Your heaven would be no heaven at all. A heaven containing all sorts of sinful people would be miserable discord indeed. Alas, for the eternity of such a heaven, There would be little difference between it and hell. Ah, listener, there is a hell. There is fire for the chaff. Take heed lest you find it out. To your cost, too late. Beware of being wise above what is written. Beware of forming fanciful theories of your own and then trying to make the Bible square with them. Beware of making selections from your Bible to suit your taste. Refusing like a spoiled child, whatever you think, bitter. Seizing like a spoiled child, whatever you think, sweet. What is all this but taking Jehoiakim's penknife? What does it amount to but telling God that you, a poor, short-lived worm, know better than he? It will not do. You must take the Bible as it is. You must read it all and believe it all. You must come to the reading of it in the spirit of a little child. Dare not to say I believe this verse, for I like it. I reject that, for I do not like it. I receive this, for I can agree with it. I refuse that, for I cannot reconcile it with my views. Eh, but, O man, who are you that replies against God? By what right do you talk in this way? Surely it were better to say over every chapter in the word, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Ah, reader, if men would do this, they would never deny hell, the chaff, and the fire.